Hello once again. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome to the, I believe it's now the 70th installment of the Lovely Inspired Minds podcast that I do with my dear friend, Mr. Michael Lee Simpson. And we have uh, we've been slowing down the output a lot. Uh, I'm a full-fledged, full-time therapist. I love, love, love it. My God. It's nice to know to uh, what you're uh, what you're doing, what you're supposed to be doing. Kind of cool. Uh, I get just have like the breadth of the human experience on my couch or Zoom or it's just it's unbelievable. But I still like to do this thing. I get to talk to super interesting people, and uh, this latest and greatest is this uh, smart guy, real smart, uh, by the name of Michael Pollack. And uh, Mr. Pollack's official title is chairman and CEO at Pollack Films. Uh, and he's a managing partner of APW Film Partners. But basically, this guy's been doing like theater and 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 uh, cinema feature, like production for like thirty five years. He's been in in this thing for a long time. We had a uh, the, the Pollock Films. Um, he's putting out a lot of really interesting documentaries. And in this particular conversation, we had a talk about uh, this one he's doing. Uh, it, it's it's about this guy named A. E. Staley who was early 1900s and he ended up becoming like the soybean king of the world and he changed farming and then he ended up uh, getting into the football world and I mean, it's just an incredible story. So we had a nice time talking about that. Uh, and he, he brought up something really interesting. I never thought about this because he's done both stage and screen. He said that essentially the stage world is it just basically, if they break even, that's all they kind of need to do because they'll just do another show and so that's kind of the business. Well, film is it's just like massively. We're gonna get a three hundred million dollar opening weekend. If we don't, we're screwed. So he's like, we should go back. To, they should they should be doing more of the of that kind of a model. But at any rate, it went everywhere as always on this lovely show. It's been a pleasure doing this, ladies and gentlemen. All five of you who are listening could be less, honestly. Don't care. And I, uh, yeah. So here comes the smart guy, Mister Michael Lee Pollock, ladies and gentlemen. I'm gonna then we're gonna do an intro. <laughs> I'm I'm done. Bye. Well, hello once again, ladies and gentlemen of the Inspired Minds podcast audience. Please say hello to the lovely and talented Mr. Michael Pollock. Michael Pollock, please say hello. Hello. Very nice to be on. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really should have been a game show host, Michael, to be honest. I'm telling you, that was some intro. I have. I'm not bad at this. Weirdly enough... This, it's, this interview is already going off the rails, but weirdly enough, I was actually on a game show. I was on rock. I was on VH1's Rock and Roll Jeopardy, which was the same show, but it was on VH1. Very cool. And I lost. How about that? Oh, no. All right. You have to go on again. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could. So how's this for a hard pivot? So when you were young, I asked this question, the same interview, everybody. When you were young, what was the first thing that you can remember that truly inspired you, like lit you up? movie or a song or person? Wow. That's a great question. The first thing that inspired me. Wow. I, I don't know how to answer that. Um, you know, I'm sure it was a teacher. Um, so, well, you know what? I can't answer it. So my mom had a great uncle who was one of the, uh, they called them, and I hope this isn't inappropriate, the great, they called them the great white hunters. Uh, and they were they were men that went into a village in Africa or South America when there was a rogue animal, and they would come and, and take the animal out. And in, in any event, my mother's great uncle was a man named Isidore Hankin. 
And I'll tell you, when I went to visit his home in the Everglades in Florida, it was one of the most inspiring events in my life. I was a, I was a little boy. I was maybe four or five. And that's the first time that I realized that some people were larger than life. Wow. Okay. Part B to the question is always the same. How did that get you to where you are now? I, I don't know that that necessarily um, directly led me to where I am now, but I, I certainly looked for um, other inspirational people in my life and found them in um, you know many mentors uh, through the years, but, and many were teachers, as I alluded to before. Um, but you know, in the in the world of filmmaking, what what always attracted me to producing was that there were so many great stories that were never told. And I can give several examples of those in, in more modern times, but it, it dates back to the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And one of the things that I learned about early on in financing films, which was my intro into the film business, was that there were more untold stories than there were told stories. And uh, today, I, there's one particular script that I refer to as the greatest story that will never be told. And it's because of some greedy producers that own the rights to it. Um, and I, I'll, I'll say the name of it. It's called In the Shadow of Wings. It's a wonderful story written by Richard Alfieri, one of my favorite writers. Uh, but there's a mammoth script uh, that in it's called The Prince of Providence, uh, based on the Mike Stanton book. And... Uh, David wrote this script in 2004, um, and it is an amazing story, and it's just never been made and probably will never be made, unfortunately. Uh, But it's one of the stories that I would love to tell if if I had the chance to tell every story uh, that I've ever read. Yeah, a lot of heartbreak in this business, I've noticed. There is. Um, most of the time it's because of, uh, people only attach dollars to storytelling. And, uh, so look, it's a business and we always want to be able to get our money out when we put money in to finance a film, but some stories need to be told and some stories are good enough to be told. So I've also been involved in a lot of, um, stage work and in in the Broadway world and the West End world, we always look to recoup. And if the film world thought more like that, if we only hoped to uh, recoup as a, as a minimum, uh, the world would be a better place and more stories would be told. So that's interesting. So if I'm hearing what you're saying, you're saying the theater world, I'm just kind of walking this through the theater world. Basically they're, Basically, what it sounds like to me is really their their financial thing is just to keep the lights on for the next show, right? Yeah, you right. you hope that you have a winner, but um, you your goal is always to recoup, to come right. clean, to to not be in the red, and be able to live to tell another story. Correct. And now you're in a world where uh, if it's making 150 million mil the first week, it's it, it's over. That's right. Which is which is very sad because there are so many great stories that don't um, have that potential, unfortunately, because they don't um, 
resonate will not resonate with a large portion of the population. Um, so that's why we find ourselves when we go to the movie theater seeing tentpole projects, and you know we see uh, Pirates of the Caribbean thirty one and and you know Rocky seventeen in the form of of Creed. Which yeah. look, I went to see Creed. I liked it, but uh, it just IP. Yeah, yeah, that, but there's great stories out there that need to be told, and and producers and financiers um, and studios need to take a chance on. So I know back in the '70s that it was um, it was Wild West. I've read Easy Rider, Raging Bull like nine times. <laughs> yeah, love that book. So I know that it was just like Wild Wild West, and Dennis Hopper's firing guns, and I mean Lucas is like the one guy who's like the nice guy. But at any yeah. rate. There was there was so much chaos that was going on back then, and they were, if, if I remember correctly, people were willing to take, take shots on, you know, Scorsese and all these guys. That would That's never happen, right? It wouldn't happen today, and it's unfortunate. So, yeah, some of the the greatest filmmakers of the uh, second half of the twentieth century were young filmmakers, out, most of them out of NYU, that got a chance um, and, and some studio gave them a chance. And studios just don't do that anymore. So, um, you know, I, I came into financing films um, in the late part of the 20th century, and that's when Wall Street was doing a lot of film financing. And since then, that has gone away. So now it's really, it's the studios and it's, it's the private equity world. So I started um, seeking private equity financing to make feature films. And uh, that is something that uh, has become my, my passion to get feature films made that will make a difference. That will, I want people to leave the theater feeling good or, or feeling bad, but I want them to feel, and I, I want them to think, and I want people to be speaking to each other about the film. Uh, I want the, the, the film to matter and I want the film to make a difference in people's lives. Yes. Do all of that. And that, excuse me, that brought you to Pollock Films. It did. It did through several other iterations, but yes, it brought me to Pollock Films and uh, Pollock Films today. Um, we are involved in a company that signed a five picture deal out of Europe that uh, we're still waiting on. We've been waiting for a while, but we're actively engaged in a multi picture deal um, out of New York. And we hope that uh, that will have us up and running in the next couple of months. Okay. Wow. And one of those pictures, listen to me, pictures. <laughs> one of the pictures of the old days. Um, yes. Sorry. Uh, there was so, I want to talk about, first I want to ask about one, and then I really want to ask about another. Okay. Tell me, tell me about the Black Cyclone, because I, I was doing my research here, and the first African-American professional football player, tell me about that. Yeah, so the Black Cyclone, um, that's actually what brought me back to Hollywood, that story. I was i was retired, and um a, a guy came and uh, knocked at my door and he wanted me to get involved in this picture. And I told him that I, I really was retired. And he said, no, you've got to read the script, got to read the script. And I, I read it and I said, boy, this is really interesting, but this project needs a lot of work. And the guy got me involved and, and that's how uh, I got back 
back into the movie business. But the story is unique. So it's about a guy named Charles Follis and and Follis um, back in the late 1800s began playing football. Um, but, you know, he was a black kid, a son of former slaves who had moved from Virginia to Ohio. And he starts playing high school football and um, he's amazing. He's got the greatest skills of any athlete in the area, at least. And he goes on to be signed um, by the Shelby Blues. This is all before the NFL. And he gets signed by the Shelby Blues to play on the same team as a guy named Branch Rickey. Um, interesting, interestingly enough, the guy that um, was partially responsible along with um, his manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers for integrating baseball and signing Jackie Robinson. Oh, shit. Yeah, so Branch was, um, you know, a good friend of Charles. And, yeah, they played for the Shelby Blues. I think he got paid $10 a a week to play. Um, And he was legendary. And he also caught with the – he caught – was a catcher with the baseball team, the American Giants of the Negro Leagues. Uh, he died wow. very young, unfortunately. He died in his 30s. Wow. Well, that's here's, – here's a question I have for you, actually. Something just popped into my mind. Does the story find you or do you find the story or kind of a both thing? Yeah. So most of the times the stories find me. Um, there, there is occasion where I'll read a book and I'll say, boy, that would make a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, then we'll go out and seek the rights to yeah. the book. Uh, that does happen. But more often than not, um, I get a script thrown at me and I'm told, you got to read this. It's really great. Huh? Um, most of the time I don't agree, but sometimes I do. Right. Um, the, the, this is also a question uh, based on inspiration, meaning does a story let – me, let, me, let me kind of give you an example of where I'm heading with this. This is so up my alley, by the way. This is, is my entire practice as a therapist, basically. So um, so I, I'm very open about these kind of things, but I went through a crazy trauma about 10 years ago, and it just I had to go to a ton of therapy and a ton of therapy and work on myself, et cetera, and it's been great. So there's this idea of narrative therapy, which kind of talks about your story, basically, what your story you tell yourselves, et cetera. So – I've had this idea about, and you have this, it's about being story aware. So I'll tell my clients, they'll say, there's tiny little stories like vignettes flying around you like butterflies all day long, client A, B. So now all you have to do is just catch them, right? Like just be aware that there's a beginning and a middle and an end at least 17 times during the day. You just can't see it yet. And then I tell my clients to like, tell me, I, I try and get them to be able to tell a story. They've never really done it before. And they kind of figure out what that structure looks like. And then I get to say, hey, congratulations, you're a storyteller. They're like, what? And it's fun. But then I ask them to kind of try to track out a meaning from the story. Like, why did you tell me? Is it about abandonment? Is it about this? So with all that horseshit in mind, yeah, this is something that is so critical for me. So the, the reason I was really excited to have this conversation was because of this film, Fields of Gold. And... Let me tell you what I get out of it, and then I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, <laughs> your Jewish, your movie. Sounds so, good. As I mentioned earlier, I mean, storytelling is so important for me. It's radically important for me, not only as a therapy thing, but just for myself. And I've like understood different stories that I've had throughout my life, and just 
again, it's a theme for me. So it's that idea of being story aware or like being a story hunter. That's kind of how I see myself in stories throughout my life that I can attach meaning to it. Just helps me out. So I'm, I have this idea of being a story hunter, right? So this is what you're, this is exactly it. You hunted a story very, very well because this guy has depth. Oh my God. So let me just run down the, tick down this for the audience here real quick. So apparently the guy, well, he was a soybean king. Well, you tell me, let's start there. He was a soybean king for a second. Go. Yeah. So, so A.E. Staley um, brought soybeans to America for all intents and purposes. When he was a, a young boy, a barefoot farmer in North Carolina, his dad who ran the farm had some missionaries um, come to the farm who were traveling uh, in America, but they had traveled recently to China. And the missionary gave his dad these soybeans and the dad handed them to young A.E. Staley who planted them in the family garden really? and he planted a couple of rows of the soybeans and that's how it all started. <laughs> and that's the beginning, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the beginning of bringing soybeans to America. Now, not a very... Uh, rich story, right? I mean, I, I couldn't make a movie about soybeans being brought to America, so there's a lot more depth to it, obviously. <laughs> exactly. No, but that's not just all, so I will yeah. continue. I can pick up the story from here. <laughs> no, uh, uh, if you would like to, or I'm glad to, whichever way we'll, you want we'll, to. We'll just, we'll, we'll just back and forth this one. We'll get okay, very good. So here we go. Um, okay, because I have so many comments on this thing. So then he starts ending up producing... Uh, cream corn starch, staley pancake, waffle syrup, stay puff fabric softener, stay flow liquid starch, and snow boy toilet bowl cleaner. But some of those are still around. <laughs> yeah. So look, all of this didn't happen at once. And what happened was when he was a young man, he wanted to sell. He, he wanted to be bigger than a farmer. And um, his parents allowed him to go out and sell and he sold at a a hardware store and uh, the he wanted to sell at the hardware store, but the owner of the hardware store made him work in the back loading. And on Christmas Eve, the, the owner of the hardware store tells him he'll never be a salesman, go back and, and get a blue collar job. You know, wow. you got to work with your hands. So he goes back to the farm and his dad passes away at uh, about 45 years old. Wow. And he's the man in the family. Now he's 18 years old. And he knew then that what he had to do was start selling. And he went on the road. He traveled by rails um, up north and out west. And he went out to the Western territories that weren't even states yet. Um, and this is in the, let's see, he was born in 1867. This is the 18, late 1880s. And he's traveling to Wyoming and Idaho wow. um, selling tobacco and um, and and corn cornstarch and he decided he meets his wife uh, in, in a stop in Chicago and he decides that after they get married that he's going to settle down and have a a manufacturing not a manufacturing business but a sales business and he rents a loft in Baltimore and starts his AE Staley cornstarch business and what he's doing is he's just buying in bulk, packaging it and selling it. Right. Um, and he gets so big that the other cornstarch uh, manufacturers want to cut him out. 
Uh-huh. So he's got a bit of a problem. So he needed to become a manufacturer. Right. So that's when he moves to Decatur, Illinois, and buys an old cereal plant and turns it into a, a starch plant. And uh, right after the turn of the 20th century, he becomes a manufacturer. You know what that guy knew how to do, by the way? I'm just realizing. Pivot. <laughs> oh, no doubt about it. He reinvented oh, himself. Yeah, he never gave up. He reinvented yeah. himself. And, yeah. uh, you know, he all this time, He's taking care of his family, his younger brother and his mother living on that farm in North Carolina. He's not just doing this for, for his ego. He's doing this to help the family and, and uh, keep his responsibility uh, that became that fell on his shoulders after his dad passed away. Yeah. So do go on. <laughs> yeah. So so he, he has this manufacturing plant and, and he. I, I need to backtrack a little. In Baltimore, his loft, there was the Great Baltimore Fire, and his, he lost everything oh. in that fire. And um, he was all but done. And the only thing that saved him was his reputation. And uh, we say in the, um, in the movie and in the trailer that his reputation was bankable, and indeed it was. And he hmm. went to um, his clients, and he sold stock. And he, there was an old Quaker banker that told him, whatever money you need to rebuild, we're going to help you. Wow. And he rebuilt the business, but he rebuilt it as a manufacturer in Decatur. And with the stock sales, he was able to buy this plant. He outbid Standard Oil for the plant. Wow. And um, it took him a couple of years to get it up and running, but he put a thousand people in this town to work. And... It was unbelievable. This is a, a farming town and a rail a railroad town, and that's what attracted him to this location as well, that there were five different railroads going in different directions. Um, but he he built this company into something, and he never gave up. I um, mean, he, he never gave up when the Depression hit. Um, and, you know, they were already a multimillion-dollar concern when they opened in Decatur. Uh but that, of course, was their gross and not what he was taking home. He lived very well, but uh, he wasn't um, a baron, an industry baron at that point. And as his business grew and as he was able to, to make a lot of money, he always did the right thing. He always took care of his employees and yeah. um, he worried about the employees' health and, and prosperity. And that's why he developed his sports teams, which... Yeah. Which, by so, the way, time out, uh, ladies yep. and gentlemen of the audience, please wait for this interruption because it's going to take a, a pretty big pivot, folks. So just to back up here, not only is this guy a soybean god, not only did he – he's a genius, obviously, in the business world, but then it takes an incredible turn about sports and go, Michael. Yeah, so the, the sports teams weren't necessarily to make money. And as a matter of fact, they, they never made money. The sports teams were – um, he created a family atmosphere in his plan. So like I said, he put a thousand people to work. Well, he wanted these people to be happy and healthy and feel a sense of community and family at the plant. It was the biggest business in the, in the area. And he wanted people to be lifetime employees. And many people did stay for 40 years plus, but he did, he developed these sports teams so that people would stay healthy and stay active and have something to do at work when it wasn't working hours. So it became almost the community center. Well, um, 
it, it also go ahead. Sorry, if I may, I'm so excited about this because I did I did pick that up and what because I noticed that they were referred to as a company team, and I realized that's right because they're they're representing the company. So it was an adjunct thing, but it's so far ahead of his time because that kind of thinking is only kind of coming into play now these days. Yeah. It makes any sense of like extracurricular things or we'll go pay for therapy. That's a hundred years ago. This guy did this. It's um, he was way ahead of his time. And in this community, because the community was so small, this is what the newspapers wrote about. They wrote about what the, what the sports teams were doing. Um, So that attracted larger sports teams. So in 1917, the Chicago White Sox win the world series. Well, two years later, they're, they're in contention for the 1919 World Series, and they've come to Decatur to play a game against the Staleys. I mean, it's just incredible. Um, they had to build bigger stands uh, to get enough seats for 3,000 people to come, but the the World Series champions of 1917 come to a little farm town to play this uh, this team, this, this team that is – not a major league professional team. They're they're considered professional athletes because they're actually being paid at this point oh, the by Staley to play sports. Oh, I'm um, sorry. I have to ask this question. This, this is a big big thing for me. Were they uh, when they were when they were hired on? Were they hired on as an employee and they played bass uh, played football? So not originally, not when the sports team started, but by this time, by the 19 teens. He was hiring people that were known athletes. Um, so he was he was actually recruiting um, to to have the best sports teams. And at, at this point, by the late nineteen teens, um, football right. comes in. So yeah, it's it's becoming quite an, an industry thing. And he's using it to promote his products as well. Of course, of course. That's, that's that's such an interesting guy. So in addition to that, then – so the, the Chicago Staley's became the Chicago Bears, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, so – and this was shortly – when they were the Staley's and they were the Decatur Staley's at this point, um, Staley is president of the Industrial League of Teams. Mm-hmm. And he sends – at this point, George Hallis has – come to work for him and he's also playing baseball and, and football. Um, other stars like uh, Dutch Sterneman are, are playing for him at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, he recruits a guy from, uh, from Ohio, from, from Ohio state named Chick Harley, who's one of the greatest players of the time. And uh, I've got a movie about him too. Uh, so here, here are these great players and he sends, Hallis to meet with, um, oh, I'm going to blank on his name now. Uh, he sends him to Canton, Ohio, uh, to meet with, thank you, to meet with Jim Thorpe. Um, and they form what becomes the NFL in 1920. Wow. They form the, the, uh, the league that becomes, it's not quite called the NFL at this point. Right. Uh, so, the football team is losing Staley money, um, but Hallis can't give up on it. Hallis loves the sport and thinks it can be as great as baseball. So he convinces Staley to move the team to Chicago where there are bigger stands and therefore a bigger gate. Um, so Staley gives him five grand 
and says, you go ahead, you move the team to Chicago mm-hmm. and just keep the name the Staley's for one year and promote my product, promote my name in front of this larger audience. Right. And they play at Cubs Park, which is now Wrigley Field. Uh-huh. And um, they become, in 1921, I believe, the Chicago Bears. <laughs> This guy's, you know, I think, you know how there's an old saying of like all roads lead to Rome. It sounds mm. like this Staley guy is that. It, it is. And, it, you know, if there's one point in the film where the mayor of Decatur says, if you look on the store at a grocery, at, uh, on the shelves at a grocery store, 90% of the items have an ingredient or part of it comes from Decatur, Illinois. Amazing. Pretty unbelievable, yeah. But here's my favorite part of this whole story from the Lisa Nelson. They really got talked. Here's what I saw. My favorite part of this whole thing is that this great line that I read. Although he no longer owed the team, Staley regularly attended Bears games and nicknamed them the transplants. Yeah. What was the transplants for? I didn't get the transplants thing. The transplants thing. I'm I'm not sure. Um, Regardless, he still owned the games because he wanted to see the game. He went to the games because he loved he loved the team and and today the mascot of the Chicago Bears is named Staley the Bear. Staley the Bear, yes. Yeah, so the the name continues in in Chicago Bears history, but um, the the greatest part of the story to me is what happened in 1929. Okay. So in 1929, the sports teams are a thing of the past. Although Staley's still a sports enthusiast, helps to finance a new field for the three I league to play on near the wow. plant. Um, but in 1929, the great depression comes and Staley's business is hurting. So most guys who own a business that's hurting would look for ways to cut back. He did the opposite. He, he had employees at the time were on a 12 hour work day. Oh, he cut them all down to an eight hour work day, but get this. He didn't cut their pay. Wow. Look at that. He hires another 200 people and adds a million dollars to the payroll just to keep productivity on par with where it was. So he, he helps the community by employing 200 more people without any benefit to his bottom line. None whatsoever. (laughs) As a matter of fact, it, it cost him. I'm sure um, he did. This is the type of guy he was. And and back, you know, when the business was first formed in Decatur, if, uh, comp- if people fell on hard times, he took care of them, he even uh, brought groceries to families that were in need. Um, he created through this, uh, through the sports program, he created a, a fellowship club. And the fellowship club did something that the United States hadn't mandated yet for employees. Uh, there was sick sick pay and there were death benefits for employees. Uh, there was paid vacation time. This was before this existed he in the United that. States. I mean, he was ahead of his time. Wow. Um, so he, he changed this town um, and then he kept the faith in, in this town and the people of this town and they they kept their faith in him and they grew together and, and, and succeeded together. Somebody should make a documentary about this. <laughs> I'm telling you. 
<laughs> That's unbelievable. What an incredible thing. And, you know, kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. This guy, I love stories like this because it's these little almost like like weird corners of America that no one remembers anymore. And there's such depth and richness to them. And you uncover these things that have just been lost to the sands of time. And I just thought that kind of thing resonates with me so much. And it inspires me, right? Because that's what that kind of thing is supposed to do. Sure. And now I'm lit up. I mean, it's just that idea of this guy who's obviously got a heart the size of Wyoming that comes across even in the trailer, by the way, kind of Wikipedia read that I did. But you can tell he was just mountain of a man, but which just like a heart of gold. I mean, it was incredible what I saw. Yeah, a really, really good and decent man. And, you know, he he never stopped believing in himself, but he also never stopped believing in the people he employed. And that that was the amazing thing. Um, safety was another big part of his uh, mandate. Yeah, From that was a big deal back then. You're right. Yeah. And from the time he opened his plant, it was safety first. And that was another part of the reason that he created this, the Staley Journal, which was a publication that went out to all the employees. It was a nice thing where it had pictures of the employees in their homes and and their kids when someone had a new kid. But um, he made sure that people knew about the benefits of working for the company and that safety was a priority. Wow. Wow. So... What drew you to the story? What When you saw this, what kind of tuned you up? So the original reason I got interested in the story, to tell the truth, was that Chick Harley, who I have a miniseries that I'm working on mm-hmm. called A Game of Deception, uh, Chick Harley played briefly for the team. And that was my initial interest. And I spoke with Julie Staley, uh, who was the director, and her husband, Mark Staley, who is the executive producer and the great grandson of A.E. Staley. Um, and he also plays A.E. Staley in the documentary. Um, and I, I spoke with them about uh, getting involved and distributing the film. And um, I got further involved in then producing the film and in editing the film and bringing it to, uh, what, to its current state um, and its current length. Um, as a family piece and something that I don't think they intended to be uh, widely distributed, mm-hmm. they uh, had about a three-hour movie, and currently the movie sits at two hours and eight minutes, um, much more manageable, and uh, it's just tighter. Uh, we the, the score that's been added to it is wonderful, um, and there's some special effects as well. So it's it's a... It's a fun movie to watch. It, it goes very fast, and the sports portion is right in the middle, so uh, it gives you a nice break from uh, from cornstarch and philanthropy. Can you use that in a tagline? Yeah. <laughs> that, should, that should be your tagline. I'm giving it to you for free. Congratulations. <laughs> that is so – I'm a jackass. Um that's fantastic. It's just what an incredible, like I was thinking about this, honestly, like in the lens of a just kind of storyteller, that kind of thing that I do myself is that I was so lucky when I was doing my research last night, like I can't, like a couple of days ago, I can't wait to talk to this guy. And it, it made me understand why I love doing this process because I get to learn so much from the people that I interview. Are you kidding me? Yeah. it's. it's- I've interviewed a, I interviewed a guy who's a senior editor of the Washington Post to talk about Trump and trying to be like, just boom, 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 boom. But the, every person has this amazing lesson for me. 
Yeah, you know, there's so much behind every story, and that's the amazing thing. And look, I could go on and on about this guy. There's the love story with with him and his wife Emma, and uh, then there's the the love stories of of their of the generations that came, wow. um, and how the company was brought to greatness. So, you know, to to tie it up in a bow for you, though. So Staley dies in 1940, and his son, who was uh, educated at the University of Pennsylvania in boarding schools, um, it was a very smart guy. So this is my, this is our executive producer's grandfather, hmm. A.E. Staley Jr., known as Gus. He runs the company from 1940 till he dies in 1975, and he's the last family member to run the company. But the company is still. Um, mostly owned by the family. Most of the stock is held by the family. And the the company is sold in 1988 for three, three point, $1.4 billion. It, the equivalent would be about $3.6 billion today. Whoa. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is a cornstarch business. And imagine how much it would have been worth if he wasn't so generous. Yeah, um, yeah but that's not the point. And you know that. Well, but that's why. So here's my point. And that's why I bring that up. So this this guy was once called by Forbes and Reader's Digest, uh, a man that had done more for the American farmer than any other man alive. Wow. uh, By introducing soybeans, which were then rotated with corn, which we all know is done today everywhere in the Midwest, because the the soy uh, adds nitrogen to the soil. Right. what so this man was also in a book by Irving Shumway was once compared to industry giants like uh, Henry Ford and and Carnegie and Rockefeller, um, and he's not. Children don't learn about this guy, and no. what's the difference between him and Ford and Carnegie and Rockefeller? Well, Ford and Carnegie and Rockefeller did not have a history of being selfless. Yeah. This, this man was, yeah. So this man was selfless and this is what children need to learn about. Exactly. This is, you know, the American dream is great. It's great to make money, but it goes right back to my, uh, my thoughts about filmmaking, right? It can't all be about money. It has to be about making a difference. And this guy made a difference. Yeah. I mean, you're preaching to the choir here, pal. <laughs> I, like this is exactly what I'm talking about. He um, is, is he understood the idea of giving without the expectation of reciprocity. Absolutely. What a lost art that is. Yes. So I'm. Uh, I'll tell you. I, I will say this. Actually, it's kind of interesting. We're having this conversation now. So last night, um, I got sent my grandfather's journals. <laughs> this is the craziest thing. So my, I was talking to my mom one time, and she's like, "Oh, I have your grandfather's journals from 1925, and like, I'm 53, so you know, 81 or so, you probably would have been gone." Um, hang on, one quick second, please. Hang on. Sure. Ah, I'm sorry about that. So, um, oh boy, I'm so sorry. I got. Uh, oh, that's okay. Grandpa's journals. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good work. So, sure enough, I have these journals from him from 1925. And it is unbelievable. I've been going through it. It's difficult to read some of the writing, but there's a there's like such enormous detail down to his cash accounts. And it's like, 
Uh, my favorite one so far is car repairs, $8.45. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> totally legit. It's like, you know, like uh, getting my laundry done, 50 cents. But it's this incredible, like really detailed thing. I haven't even, I haven't even seen it yet. So I'm really excited. It's almost like the, the Ark of the Covenant tree or something. <laughs> sure. Of course. Yeah. And you don't know what you're going to find in there. And that's the amazing thing. And that's the thing about storytelling and finding, because I think you know this too. I've been saying this for a long time, like telling a story or storytelling involves two things, essentially. First, you got to tell the story and whatever that is, you do it, you do it well. But what's harder, I think, is to find it. That's yeah. that's the real talent. It, it is. But I'll tell you, you know, I do have a lot of respect for people that tell a story that most people know. Right. So most people know uh, who Jackie Robinson was. And yet um, they go out and they make a a movie about Jackie Robinson Um, to do that and do it well. You have to tell people what they don't know. And uh, yes, maybe more people are interested in hearing the story because they know who he is. But it's much easier to tell a story that nobody about someone that nobody knows about. Because there there are no expectations, yeah. So you can't disappoint people, um, and and everything is is a surprise. That's dead on. Thank you for thank you for the rephrase, counselor. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're absolutely correct. You're, you're spot on about this, and this conversation is so good for me. So, like I said, even as a therapist, you know. So the question I have for you, kind of maybe tying this a bit together here, is who's your favorite film storyteller? Whatever that means. My favorite film storyteller. Yeah, whatever that means. Hmm. Well, I you know, I think that when it comes to storytelling, writing is always the single most important thing. Um, but as I said, Many things are written that are, and there are stories that are never told. Um, so then you you have to go with with producers, right? So who who finds the stories and produces the stories that are important? And if I said the name that I'm that I'm thinking, um, it wouldn't be very appealing. So I, I won't say it. <laughs> um, you know, there there are many gifted people in the in the movie business um but the people that have the guts to tell a story that is not a tentpole project or not uh, an easy story to tell that is that uh it does not necessarily have um a theme that will be uh widely uh, appealing. Uh, those co- those people collectively are my are my heroes in this business. Yeah, a hundred percent. Because I'm old enough to know. I, I used to work at a video store. How's that for dating myself? VHS tapes, by the there way. There you go. I remember them. <laughs> so, eighteen years. By the way, greatest job I've ever had in my life because I got to just watch all kinds of movies. Like, oh, I David Lynch. I will figure out who he is and Kurosawa. So that's kind of how I got in that world. So. Anyway, God, I love that job so much. But so that's how I got, I got raised on kind of those kinds of films, right? Those kind of like mid-level, like Steven Soderbergh's early work, 
you know, like this didn't cost a lot of money, and but they would do it back then. Now I know it's really difficult to have that done. It's either IP times yep. ten or, eh, am I wrong? No, you're not. And it's funny that you mentioned Soderbergh. Stephen was involved uh, at a very early stage in the the Mammoth script that I was talking about, The Prince right. of Providence. Yep. I saw Sex Lies a videotape, but I was actually that kid. I was like. That guy has talent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No doubt about it. I mean, I remember, you know, seeing Tom Hanks uh, act on in Bosom Buddies and saying, "This guy's going to be a big, big star." You need that call um, too. <laughs> yeah. And if if you look back and and watch that today, you'd say, "Oh, this is this is not good." You know. <laughs> <laughs> but there was something about him. Sorry. There was just something about him. You just. Yeah. You knew that he had that that uh, charisma. Yeah, it's absolutely what it is. I've, I've worked in the music business long enough. I met a lot of people with charisma, believe me. Yeah. And, um, and you can just sense it. Like you walk into the room and you, they just like give off a feeling of it immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pe- people that, uh, that gravitate, uh, that other people gravitate toward, yeah. Yes. Uh, and I will name drop because I get to Neil Young, ladies and gentlemen. I worked with, I worked with that guy. That was well, amazing. He was, he was shockingly nice to me. An amazing guy. He does not like a lot of people. I took it as a badge of honor. <laughs> Tell, <laughs> how, did you, how do you know Neil didn't like you, Jeff? He didn't yell at me. Oh. oh. There you <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's been amazing talking to you, man. Uh, I didn't, didn't do anything you need to plug. <laughs> What's that? Is there anything you need to plug? I mean, I could talk about this Staley guy forever. Hey, um, look, uh, the Pollock Films website, uh, if people want to go to that and see what we've got going on, it's it's simply pollockfilms.com um, and uh, get an idea of what we've got going. Um, there's many films, film projects that are, uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, film projects that will make a difference. These are stories that uh, will resonate with people and that people will be able to relate to. And uh, we intend to get all of these projects made in the next five years or so. Outstanding work, ladies and gentlemen. God, thank you so much. Okay. Here's how I end these things. Uh, I'm going to pretend to say goodbye. You're going to pretend to say goodbye and then I'll hang up fake and then we'll talk for a couple of seconds after deal. Yeah. Jeff, could I say one more thing? All yours. Go. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we, we have a premiere of fields of gold at the fine arts theater in Beverly Hills on Friday, August 18th, and uh, through our website at pollockfilms.com, people can RSVP, and there are a little less than 200 seats available. Um, So if they go today, they may still be able to get a ticket. Go, go, go. Run as fast as you can, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great – watch the trailer. Everything's right about this thing. So – Here's why. Uh, here's how I do this. I say um, it's been amazing talking to you, honestly, Michael. Thank you so much for doing this. The, the Thank you. Acted this whole Staley thing got me into this, you know, storytelling idea and more of that world that I get into. So, outstanding work. Your turn. Say a fake goodbye. Oh, so long, everyone. Thank you very much, Jeff, for having me on. I appreciate it. <laughs> no problem at all. Hang tight, and my right. fake hang up. Out. <laughs>